welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on books about place at ryanmurdoch.com. Arthur Gellhorn wants it to be known as a novelist. Instead, she's remembered as one of the 20th century's greatest war correspondents. She wrote about what war does to ordinary people and the despair of those who have lost everything. She covered the Spanish Civil War. She went to shore on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. But she also wrote about her travels in China, Africa, and beyond with vividness and originality. She lived a truly remarkable life on her own terms, and she remains one of my favorite writers on plays. I have the great good fortune of being joined by Gellhorn's biographer, Caroline Moorhead, to talk about her life and work. Caroline's written several highly acclaimed biographies, including one on Bertrand Russell, on the explorer Freya Stark, and on Lucy de la Tour Dupin, and others. She's a prolific human rights journalist whose articles appear in The Times, Independent, Spectator, The Times Literary Supplements, The New York Review of Books, and other publications. Her latest book, Edda Mussolini, The Most Dangerous Woman in Europe, will be published by Chat on Windows on October 27th, so keep your eye out for that. That sounds really good. Caroline's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and was awarded an OBE for her services to literature in 2005. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation about Martha Gellhorn, one of the great witnesses and writers of the 20th century. Caroline Moorhead, welcome to Personal Landscapes. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed your biography. The preface alone contains so much detail about Martha Gellhorn's life. You wrote that you got to know her because your parents were friends. Uh, How did they meet? I believe that they met immediately after the war. It's possible that Martha might have met my father when they were both war correspondents during the war. But immediately after, when she went to Italy to look for a a child to adopt, uh, my parents were living in Florence. And she must have been introduced to them and stayed with them, because I know she went to look at some orphanages in Florence. Was your father the the historian Alan Moorhead? Indeed he was. Yes, he was. I've got his two uh, Nile books here on my shelf. Really outstanding, wonderful books. I've been trying to to track down a copy of um, Cooper's Creek for ages. That's one I'd like to, to read as well. I don't know if it's out of print. It's very good. I don't know whether it's, I'll I'll look into whether it's out of print. Yeah, I I haven't been able to find a copy. Well, if I can't, haven't got, if I've got a copy, I'll send it to you. Oh, thank you. No, I'd love to read it. Uh, Since this is about books, I think we should start with the writing. And I know some of my listeners may not be familiar with Martha Gellhorn's work. So what do you think it was that made her writing so compelling? I think she was a natural nonfiction writer. I don't think she was a very good novelist, which is what she terribly wanted to be. I think all her nonfiction is better than her fiction. And indeed, some of her fiction is so loosely based on nonfiction that it might as well be nonfiction. I think she had a, a real sympathy for people, particularly for underdogs. Um, I think she was interested in how power affects the people who are poor and disadvantaged. I think she had a strong sense of compassion. 
And I think she was terribly good at the sort of telling detail. You know, something, some little thing that suddenly brought a scene alive. I think she was really good at. You wrote in the biography that she had a talent for describing the ordinariness and tragedy and the horror of war framed by the by the smallest scenes. That's right. I think that's what distinguished her as a war correspondent, because there weren't very many women at the time she started being a war correspondent. And what men tended to do more was to write about the bigger battles, the bigger military themes. And her point was that she wanted to write about how war affected people. And in Spain, at the Spanish Civil War, she had a commission to write a piece, but she couldn't quite see how to do it. And she said to Hemingway, with whom she then was, I don't know how to do this piece. And Hemingway said to her, do what you do best. Write about what you're interested in. Write about the people you see. And actually, you know, how, how apocryphal that is, I don't know. But certainly that's what distinguished her writing. The story of how she got to Spain was quite incredible as well. You wrote that wearing gray flannel trousers and a wind cheater and carrying a knapsack and a duffel bag full of tinned food, she crossed the border on foot at Andorra. She had $50 and spoke no Spanish. It was very cold. That's absolutely right. That's just like she was fearless. Um, she really was. She thought nothing of going off on her own, wherever it might be, with very little money. If you remember, there was that wonderful quote when somebody said to her, why are you going to Spain? She says, um, I'm going where the boys are. She, she wanted to be part of that world. She wanted that, that camaraderie that she perceived existed among war correspondents. And how did uh, what she experienced in Spain shape the rest of her writing and her approach to life? I think it very much developed her sense of compassion for the victims of war, for people who were caught up despite themselves. Wars have got nothing to do with them. I think it gave her a real interest in that. And I think, you know, like all war correspondents, I think she was, you know, she got a lot of adrenaline from, from the excitement of war. You know, it is a very heady thing to write about. So the combination of making her a player in the world that she admired and was interested in, and the feeling that she could write about it in a way that not many men were writing about it. I think, I mean, after all, the Second World War came quite soon after. I think that by then, by, by the time of the Second World War, I think she knew what she wanted to do. Those are the two sections that stood out the most for me in, in the collection, The Face of War, as well, the her writing on the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War, I thought were the strongest pieces. Indeed, I think that's completely right. I think they were. And I think some of the later writing on Vietnam is strong. Uh, but otherwise, I agree with you. I, I think those early war pieces are the best. Could you describe her uh, experience on D-Day? That's quite an incredible story. Yeah, it's a very characteristic story. As with all stories of great people doing these kind of things, one can never be a 100% of its accuracy, but as far as I know, as far as I came to understand, what happened was Hemingway had stolen from her the accreditation for Colliers. Colliers could only have one accredited journalist, and, and Hemingway, behind her back, had taken what could, would otherwise very probably have gone to her. So that was one problem. And the other problem, of course, she was a woman, and the American army in particular had stated that there were to be no women on the front line. 
So she was doubly stuck. So she was hovering around London trying to find out when the landings were going to come. And she got wind of it because she went to a press conference. But anyway, you know, she was just alert to it. So she hurried to the coast, went to a port, saw a Red Cross ship waiting to go, got her way onto the port. And when she was stopped, she said, I'm just a nurse joining joining the Red Cross ship over there, hurried over, boarded it, locked herself in the bathroom and stayed there till the boat had sailed. By which time she let herself out and everybody was curious, but what could they do? And so the boat proceeded to France and she went ashore and helped the nurses bring back casualties, both German and Allied. And she was very useful in that she also was able to interpret from the German because, of course, she spoke German. And then she came back and she wrote a very fine piece. And the good sort of um, codicil to it all is that Hemingway also got itself over on a landing craft. But his landing craft never landed, so he never actually landed. And he wrote a very self-serving piece, which is not as good as that piece, pretending that he'd landed. Yeah, their coverage of, of the war in general was so different from Hemingway's. I mean, he seemed to always put himself at the center of the action, as though you know he were there leading the charge and... And I thought uh, not only was her perspective far more interesting, but her writing was much better. Yeah, in that particular case, certainly. He always did put himself in. It was all, I saw the battle, I heard I heard bullets. She really very, very seldom put herself in. And, I mean, of course, again, you have to go back to the fact that, of course, Hemingway was a superb novelist. So that, in a way, I think she was, in many ways, the better non-fiction writer. How soon after the initial landings was was she on the scene? Oh, quite soon. The following day, I think, within 24 hours. Right. The descriptions are so vivid, you know, bodies float, floating face down in the sea and, and the naval guns firing. And okay. she wrote about the seascape filled with ships, the, the greatest naval traffic jam in history. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she she had a very good way of sort of pulling together her perceptions or observations into sentences that brought them alive for you. I think that was one of her great talents. So she went on to travel with the Carpathian Lancers uh, in their fight to retake Italy, and she was at the Battle of the Bulge. She went on a night flight over Germany with a fighter crew. Like she, she really saw some of the most pivotal events of the war. Yeah, she absolutely did. And what's more, she loved it. You know, um, because she was tended to be fairly fearless. And of course, you know, you have to go to the excitement of it. You know, there were there were bad times. She she went into Dachau ten days after it was liberated, and was very very shocked by that, um, as indeed was everyone. Um, and what she wrote about that again was sort of raw and painful, and in a way, it also formed the basis of her later stream pro-Israel and by definition, therefore, anti-Palestinian. I think she would say later on that some of her profound feelings about Israel had come from that moment. It also really shaped her views of Germany and post-war Germany. You could see how it came out in her, her later writings. But, but you said that uh, Dachau was the determining moment of her life, that she would never really trust in people's fundamental honesty and compassion again. That's right. That's certainly what she said. 
And in some of her later travel articles too, like she came back to post-war Germany. She didn't have very many positive feelings about the place after what she'd seen during the war and, and of the camps. But at the same time, she, she really nailed certain elements of the character. Like she wrote that um, the Germans more than any other people I know seem isolated in their country and in their Germanness. And she saw the German combination of excessive factual knowledge and a logic and obedience as the possibly the greatest German sin. Yes, yes, she did. I thought that was really insightful. Yep, so did I. Very. I mean, it would be so interesting if she were alive now to see what she made of the current political war scene. Yeah, I, I live in Berlin for for the last what six years, I guess. So the, some of these observations really hit home. So it was also interesting that she said cruelty and bullying are the reverse side of this disciplined obedience. Yeah, yes, absolutely. You can really see this playing out in this this um, very rule-bound culture. Yeah, absolutely. No, I see that. How interesting to be living in Berlin. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good city. So many of the events of history took place here of the 20th century anyway. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that struck me about her war writing is that the way she interviewed the the men she encountered about their lives and what they thought would happen to them after the war. Yes, yes, exactly. You mean the, the sort of hangover for, for people who'd been in the war after the war. She had huge sympathy for for the difficulties faced by people after five years of war going home. I mean, she was very imaginative in her compassion. Compassion is such a sort of bad word, but in her empathy, if you like. She imagined herself into, into difficult positions that people found themselves in, um, of which sort of going back after the war was, of course, one of them. It was also true for her, of course. The end of the war saw the end of her marriage to Hemingway. I remember talking to veterans in my hometown. I come from a very small town in Canada. And when I, when I was, I guess, in my late 20s, there were still a handful of Second World, World War veterans there. And they told me about their experiences. And they said, basically, that it was the most vivid thing that had ever happened to them. Many went abroad for the first time, and they experienced these immense trials, but also companionship and excitement and strange cities, you know, love and danger. And then they go back to these these small towns and yeah. take up jobs as shopkeepers and yeah. salesmen. And they know that the, the life they lived in their 20s was the most vibrant, you know, exciting, fully alive period yeah. they would ever experience again, and that nothing like this would ever happen to them. So did she have that same sense of dislocation when the war ended? Yeah, absolutely. I think she did. I think in sort of letters she wrote to friends, she was clear that that peace was going to be very hard for her. She wasn't quite sure what she was going to do. Her marriage was over. She didn't have any money. She knew she wanted to write, but she wasn't particularly with anybody. She knew she wanted a child, but there wasn't anybody to have her child with. I think she found those first post-war years very hard. And of course, when she went back to America, and it was McCarthy, America, she was so appalled by that that it, it was really the beginning of her anti-Americanism, which again was was much increased by Vietnam. Let's backpedal just for a, a moment here, since since you brought up America. But like her first real breakthrough as a writer happened during the Great Depression. 
Yeah, could you tell us about her work for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration? Yes, indeed. I mean, it's a particularly interesting moment because I think that the book she wrote was one of the best things she did. And I know it was her first book, The Troubles I've Seen. It was meant to be fiction, but again, it was really basically non-fiction. What happened was her mother was a friend of Eleanor Roosevelt's, and she was Martha was batting around looking for what to do. And through Eleanor Roosevelt, heard that Harold Hopkins was looking for writers to go to different parts of America, Depression America, and not write back fact of, of fact statistics, but write back what they saw and heard. He said to them, I want you to be my ears and eyes. And he selected about a dozen, 15, and all of them slightly older than Martha, who was then about 25, and also all of them with more experience of journalism than she had. And he sent them out to all different bits of America. And they filed back their reports. And their reports were completely fascinating, as you can imagine. And Martha's were superb. And I think it was there that she first developed a voice that was to be very much heard, which was a sort of wasn't an irritation, but it was a sort of desolation about what she was witnessing. It was an indignation, a sort of barely concealed indignation about the terribleness of things. I think she first encountered this in the, in the South, in the Carolinas, and filed back her reports. Now that came to a slightly sticky end because in one place, she discovered that a whole lot of men who were on a welfare program were digging holes with spades and then ordering new spades and with the new spades filling them in, i.e. it was completely pointless work. And she said to them, I think this is ridiculous and you should protest, which was exactly what she hadn't been sent south to do. And then she moved on somewhere else. The next thing she heard was that they'd staged a sit-in and a, a general protest. And when asked why they were doing it, they said they did it because the nice lady who came around last week told us to. And so back in Washington, they decided that she'd probably done enough. I mean, I mean, she wasn't probably dismissed, but they, by then she had written a whole lot of reports. And so she moved on. So how much of that sense of indignation came from her mother's activism? Well, she was very close to her mother. Um, she was the only girl. She was devoted to her mother, who was clearly the most admirable woman. Upright, clever, well-educated, cultured, suffragette, strong, and totally raised Martha in that way. Raised her to be in every way as as demanding and full of expectations of her brothers, and to speak out. So, yes, a lot of that came from my mother. But she also loved her father, who was a doctor. And she, I mean, she had a very happy growing up. Parents who loved her, brothers she was close to, went to Bryn Mawr, grew up feeling that she really could do anything she wanted to. Was she a reader as a child? Yes, the family were all readers. She was very well read. 
Do you recall what uh, what sort of books she was reading growing up? No, I think beyond the obvious classics, American and European, um, because she went quite early to France and learned French, and because she took up with the Jouvenel, who was older than her, um, journalist, activist, um, very intelligent, cultured man, to him, she read a lot of French literature and French culture. And that would have been in the early 30s. Do you think that first trip to France kind of solidified her, not to say rejection of America, but her turn towards um, Europe and her desire to spend more time there? Yes. And I think it became kind of obvious when other things came up. After all, after, after she split up from the Jouvenel, she went back to America. Didn't Toby like it? Got various jobs, didn't quite work. And then met, met Hemingway. And after that, it was the Spanish War. And quite soon after that, it was World War II. So, yes, she loved France. She had a wonderful time. De Jouvenel was extremely interesting. Um, she sort of fell in love with Europe, yes. The period of time that she did spend in America was quite amazing. I, I was interested to read about her stays in the White House and you know, her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. But it it really didn't. It sounded like a pretty shabby place at the time. Not not at all what uh, what one would imagine. And then the food sounded terrible. Food was clearly terrible. I think it was more rundown would be to say too strongly, but it was sort of not stylishly done up. It was cozy. It was sort of print sofas and chairs, um, which suited Eleanor Roosevelt fine. I mean, it wasn't clearly glamorous in the way it later became. After the war, she, in this dislocated state, trying to find a place to go, goes back to the US in this horrible McCarthy era and didn't find that very conducive. She lived, she didn't live much of her life in the US as she seemed to be uh, on the move, you know, doing her writing in borrowed or rented rooms all over the place. That's right. She kept moving. So what do you think drove her constant wandering from place to place like that? I think she was trying to settle. I think she didn't quite know what she wanted. Because if you remember, she also went to New Mexico, where she had a house. She didn't want to live in America by then. By then, she needed to get out of America. But it wasn't clear to her where she should go or what she should do. So she was sort of wandering around looking. And it was at that point that she started thinking of having a child. And she realized that the best thing she could do was to adopt a war orphan. And it was at that point that she went back to Italy and started looking. I mean, she found it quite hard to find the child she wanted um, until the day came when she went to an orphanage. And I think it was in Florence. And there was this little boy who would look at her from the other side and then came over and stood and put his hand out to her. And she just fell in love. She thought that that's the child for me. Um, and it took her a while, but she managed to adopt him. In fact, it was quite complicated, and Eleanor Roosevelt had to help. It's complicated getting the right papers. Anyway, in the end, she did get the right papers, and she took him back with her to Mexico. You've written it, that this period in Mexico was one of the happiest of her life. Was this partly why? Yeah, partly that. Partly she was earning quite a lot of money. She was writing for the Saturday Evening Post, and she didn't find those pieces difficult. She loved um, where she was. She loved her house. She loved the weather. 
she had this little boy. Uh, she had very good friends. Um, I think that was a good period. One of the other things that stood out too was, I, I don't remember where I read this, but she wrote that no matter how unsatisfactory the work or how drab the furnished bed sitter, I have, I have the scenery chosen with care, sea or mountains. She cared less about the, the room she lived in or the, um, the amenities that she, that she had there, but she cared more about the surroundings. So what was the importance of landscape in her life? I think it was very important because if you think of all the places she lived, like later when she lived in Kenya, yes, she was only, she was quite attached to her, to her interiors, but they were always very plain. Um, they were sort of plain colours. I remember her flat in London later on was sort of royal blue sofas and chairs and rattan chairs and glass tables, but but very plainly furnished, plainly, comfortably furnished. But yes, she loved, she loved views and also, of course, she loved the weather. Um, in Not, Not for Nothing was one of her books called The Weather in Africa. She really noticed the, the, the weather. She, she liked sun, she liked the sea, she liked to swim. She liked everything that good weather brought. It's odd that she ended up in, in London of all places then, isn't it? Well, I know you're quite right. Uh, why did she end up in London? I suppose it was people. Her friends were ultimately in London. And of course, really, she ended up in Wales. Combination between Wales. And Wales was another beautiful view, uh, another beautiful valley. Um, but you're right. I mean, the weather was not good. But then she went off whenever she could to places like South America or wherever in order to swim and have good weather. Yeah, it was interesting, the list of places that she had she had lived in, written in. I see that she spent some time in Malta as well. I, I lived there for six years. Oh, really? What were you doing in Malta? Well, I, I wanted to um, write a book about a place that I'd never been to and uh, something kind of, I was, I was sort of swept up in um, Lawrence Thurl's writing many years ago, and 20 years ago when I lived in Tokyo. And, and I wanted to find a place like that and sort of have that experience. But it turned out to be nothing like that at all. But uh, did you write your book? Yes, I'm. I'm trying to uh, somebody to take an interest in it right now. Yeah, it wasn't what I expected to end up with. Like I, I thought I would have something more Dorellian in a sense and and more idyllic. But uh, the period that we that we lived there coincided with this wholesale takeover of the government by a basically a criminal enterprise and with the murder of, yeah. of Daphne Caruana Galizia, whose, whose yeah. website I had written for earlier that yeah. year. And, you know, I was in there in the midst of all that. And I've continued to write for a Maltese um, investigative news outlet that was started right after, after Daphne was killed. So still, still very much connected to the place, but it, the story became something very different. What we, what we ended up witnessing. Yeah. A fascinating place. Okay. Much stranger than, than outsiders would imagine, I think. I've only been there briefly. Yeah, the, the longer you spend there, the more um, the more layers you can uncover. I mean, it's typical of island places, I guess. In such such small places, end up having much much more divisions and boundaries, and Ooh. yeah, they seem infinitely larger than than they appear on the map. Yes, yes, yes. I understand that. Yeah, so Gilhorn's travels are collected in a book called "The View from the Ground." And she she really covered a lot of territory. I mean, 
among my favorites in in the book. Her uh, visits to communist Poland were quite quite incredible, and her her coverage of the Eichmann trial. I also love almost most of all her books, Travels with Myself and Another. Oh, it's fantastic! Yeah, because it's so funny. It's remarkable that it was written so late in her life. I didn't realize that. It was quite late in her life. When when it appeared, and she got these wonderful reviews, to her annoyance, a lot of people said, you know, um, oh, who is them? We've just discovered Martha Gellhorn, which she found quite annoying. Yeah, so she had a, a bit of a resurgence late in life. Was it because of this book? Yeah, I think it started with this book, yes. And then a lot of the others were reprinted. What, what was it about this book that caught people's imagination at that time? Maybe the humour. I mean, two or three of the chapters are really, really funny. I mean, she wrote about her honeymoon with Hemingway, and so much as it could be a honeymoon, when they went off to nationalist China and travelled to the war front. And um, it's one of the, it's truly one of the most humorous bits of writing I know. I mean, it is to laugh aloud. Maybe could you describe some of that journey a little bit? It's absolutely horrible. I mean, it would sound like a terrible time. She, yes, exactly. She made she was able to make the horrible time sound really funny. For instance, she picked up some terrible skin disease in her hands, um, which meant she had to cover it with stuff and then wear gloves. She was very humorous about that. Then they went off on a long trek in the pouring rain, and Hemingway had a very, very, very small pony. There's a wonderful moment when when she says to Hemingway, who's got off the horse and appears to be carrying it, she says to Hemingway, put down that pony. I don't know why, I, I agree, it doesn't sound very funny out of context. I, I remember that scene, yeah. And there was a very funny scene of uh, a drinking contest as well between Hemingway and the, and the Chinese military official, where he drinks the whole, the whole room under the table, basically. Yeah, all that is very comically done. Exactly the sort of thing that tends to happen in China as well. I think my favorite um, piece from that book was the story of her trip in East Africa, where she rents the the Land Rover from some hunter. Do you remember that? And then I got a quote here somewhere. The driver that she hired, Joshua arrived in black imitation Italian silk pipe stream trousers, white shirt, black pointed shoes, black sunglasses, and ornate red frames holding a cardboard suitcase. Rather uncharacteristically of those employed as drivers, Joshua did not drive. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. You see, that's exactly what that book was like. Oh, it was fantastic. The, the best, uh, I, I have to read one more because it's so good that she said, um, the Land Rover was turned so that the passenger seat faced the track. Joshua sat therein with the door open, his knees crossed, one foot swinging languidly outside. He held a miniature teacup and a saucer in his left hand. And as I stared transfixed, he lifted his cup, his little finger curled, and sipped daintily. <laughs> it's just great, huh? Very good. Yes, it is. It's very good. I think that's probably my favorite of her books. That and The Trouble I've Seen. Yeah, those are my two favorites. Yeah, The Trouble I've Seen, that first story, it's just so gripping. She has an incredible opening scene where she describes a woman. I think it was Mrs. Madison. Yeah. Something Miss Madison writes it, getting dressed right. up in her best hat and gloves, you know, putting on makeup, this long, page long scene. The paragraph ends with a sentence that just stops you in your tracks. She was going uptown to beg. Yeah, you know, it's wonderful, wonderful piece. 
it's it's those those small elements of daily life, you know, and you really allow you to empathize with these uh, characters. Also, uh, for for somebody who wrote journalism, uh, a, a lack of objectivity in a sense, right? Oh, I think I read somewhere that she said sitting on the fence is contemptible. Yes. Yes, and if you remember the famous phrase she coined in Spain, when somebody said to her that the atrocities are not all being carried out by Franco's side, she said, yes, but the point is they're on, they're on the right side. And journalists shouldn't be all that objectivity shit. I mean, she and Hemingway certainly didn't believe in objectivity in that war. What made her so confident that she she knew she was on the right side? I suppose it was the liberal values she grew up with. It was the sense that her mother perhaps had given her about good and bad, morality, ethics, and how people should behave. I think that played into it. I mean, the willful blindness in Spain, now we know so much more about what the communists were doing and the sort of, you know, the brutality towards the, the, the clergy, the Catholics and so on. It makes her absolute blinkered view slightly less sympathetic. What was the view of communism beyond that, like after the war? I'm not sure I really know. I mean, her politics sort of settled down to being left certainly not as far left as communism. And I think I would say she was much more swayed by notion of right and wrong than she was a party person. I don't think she was terribly interested in party politics. I think she admired certain politicians like Adlai Stevenson. But I don't remember her ever writing about communism. I suppose she would have had a very very early view of politics up close with the, the time she spent with the Roosevelt's. So she wouldn't have a whole lot of illusions that these are people up on a pedestal or, or something other than normal people. Exactly. Exactly. She didn't really have people on pedestals. You mentioned her fiction briefly before. You've said that they were often just um, kind of retellings of her own experiences or those of her friends. They hewed very close to her life. Was her fiction successful during her lifetime? No, not very. It wasn't. One of her books called His Own Man was in fact stopped. And I can't remember whether it was the American edition or the English edition of the stop because she had written in it, her character in it, was very, very transparently based on one of the Olivetti family. And they got it stopped. I mean, it was, to read it, you just, it was just to read what in fact had happened to this woman. I think she didn't have that transformative talent that novelists need, that however much they observe the truth and are interested in fact, there is then some alchemy, there is some talent that transforms it into fiction. And I don't think she had that. Do you think that would be differently received today? Because, I mean, 
you have writers like like Henry Miller or or Jack Kerouac who basically wrote about their own lives and called it fiction. Yes, I find it quite hard to judge how she would be seen today. I mean, I don't know how much she's read today. I don't know how many of her books are in print. Certainly here, Elan Books brought out the troubles I've seen last year. I don't know how well that's done. And in fact, um, I did a long introduction to it about the writers sent out to write about America during the Depression. And I don't know how that's done. They've kept in print for a very long time travels with myself and Laura. And, and I'm sure that her collected pieces, both fiction and non, and both war and ordinary non, non-wartime pieces, I think those are all in print. Um, how much the novellas are in print or read now, I don't know. Yeah, I've got the weather in Africa. I've read that. That's, I think that's still in print. Okay. Okay. I think that's probably the best of them. Yeah, that's the only one I've read. Are, are there any other ones that you think are worth reading? In terms of her fiction? Well, there was one called, I think, Liliana. And I don't really think that has endured. No, I don't. And I don't think really his own man has. I think the weather in Africa, those novellas are probably the best. Yeah, I thought those were quite good. So it was Eland who brought her, her work back into print, wasn't it? John Hatt, originally? Exactly. It was John Hatt's the Eland book. And I can't remember whether what they reprinted was Travels with Myself or some of the collected editions of, of her pieces. Why did it fall out of print? I mean, the writing is quite incredible. It's The Trouble I've Seen, Travels with Myself and Another. It's, it's, a, it's really fantastic stuff. And it feels so so rich today. I mean, it puts it puts a lot of current writing to shame. So why do you, why do you think it would have fallen out of favor like that? Because I think a lot of good writers do just fall out. And sometimes they're picked up and have a whole new renaissance. But, but you know, things move on. You know, people do. People who were immensely famous 15, 20 years ago have totally fallen out of favor. That's such a shame. And so much of this now is, is such a, an incredible, vivid window into some of the most pivotal events of the 20th century. I mean, she really brings you to that place in a way that sometimes history doesn't. So they're so valuable. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think they should be sort of set pieces in university courses. Yeah. Um, there's all those collections. And for all I know, they are, but but I don't know. As we come towards the close, I wanted to talk a little bit about her character. And you, you brought it so vividly to life in the preface. There was so much detail in there. A couple of things stood out for me. One was the importance of keeping fit. She seemed to emphasize how important it was to stay in shape. What was it about that that obsessed her? You're absolutely right. That was true all her life. And when she was in her 80s, she took great pride in the fact that she weighed the same as she'd weighed when she was, I don't know, 25. Um, she exercised regularly. She said looking good was a public duty. You couldn't let yourself go. I mean, she was very, very handsome. She was a, she was a very striking-looking woman. And obviously, when young beautiful as well as attractive. But even in old age, she was very handsome. You know, always dressed in black, always very thin, um, you know, beautifully made up. It, it really mattered to her. 
very careful about what he ate. And the other thing, that, too, that you seem to emphasize was the, um, the importance of laughter. She remembered it as the central and loveliest fact of life. Yeah, that's right. She was very humor, humorous. She had a sort of slightly deadpan, sort of quippish sense of humor. And she loved to laugh. I mean, what she did in her old age was she assembled around her um, a sort of group of younger people, most of them journalists, most of them rather successful journalists, who became her ears and eyes. Basically, she could no longer go. You know, there were people like John Kilger, John Simpson of the BBC. They were people who went out and did things. And when they came back from their troubles, they went to see her. And she loved that. She loved the detail of where they'd been and what they'd done and and what it was like. It sort of made her live through them. And, you know, she was always very funny on these occasions. I mean, she used to laugh a lot. She liked to laugh. And you said she kept her, her many of these friendships in compartments, in a sense. Yeah. She liked to see these people on their own. What she liked you to do was she liked you to go for a drink. She drank whiskey. Um, you drank either whiskey or wine. Uh, you sat in the same place in her sitting room, in Cadogan Place, Cadogan Square, and talked. And she liked, didn't like talking about herself, didn't absolutely ever talk about Hemingway. Um, but what she wanted to do was to hear about the outside world. All I really had that interested her was that I was very caught up in human rights. That's what she and I would talk a lot about. So what did you learn from her the most, do you think? What, what most stood out, the sort of lessons that you carried forward in your own writing? Um, I suppose I've always had a feeling, which must have been increased by talking to her, of wanting to, to use a bad sentence, bear witness to what goes on. The need to write about write about people who are being marginalized, discriminated against, losing out on life. Certainly, she would have increased that interest in me. Um, I was writing at the time a human rights column for the Times. I think she liked that. I mean, it was definitely that side of it, I think, most of all. Yeah, I think it was from your biography where late in life she had said she believed it was her duty to record the injustice she witnessed and that she, she yeah. felt that it was important to get things on the record in the hopes that it, at some point or other somebody couldn't absolutely lie about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Um, I think that's exactly what she did. So what did she value most? I get a sense that toughness, um, courage, honesty were really strong core values for her. Yeah, courage, certainly. I mean, I admired her hugely. I was a bit frightened of her, but I admired her hugely. And I admired uh, more, perhaps, the courage with which she went into old age than, you know, courage as a war front. Though I'm sure that was incredibly admirable as well. Courage, not complaining, never complain. Be honest, honest to yourself, honest with other people. I mean, she seemed to exemplify values that I thought were very important and that I admired. 
And she went on with that, I think, all her life. You wrote that she was also quite a difficult person. Like, tell me about that side of her personality. I mean, that honesty has kind of some brutal side sometimes, I think. Yeah, she was certainly brutal. Some of her friends, she was certainly brutal. Sybil Bedford was a really, really close friend of hers. And one day she sort of stopped getting in touch with Sybil and, and you know, Sybil couldn't quite, you know, make up why. Um, and so one day she said to Sybil, um, Sybil, I really don't want to see you anymore because you've become too boring. I mean, she was capable of being brutal, brutally honest, no question. That was not a good side. Uh, the other not good side was, you know, with her son Sandy. Uh, the adopted son, who got fat. He just had a tendency to get fat. And she didn't like fat people. She didn't want people to be fat. She thought being thin was, uh, was what you had to do. And if you were fat, you had to take a grip, do something about it. You know, there were periods where she was really not nice to Sandy. But then, of course, later on, she was. But she, you know... Real honesty can be quite brutal. Yeah, and you said she was, um, when ill at ease and on foreign ground and unable to get away, boredom quickly turned to displeasure. She wasn't very good at concealing that. So she seemed to kind of have no mechanism for concealing that that boredom or, or behaving um, no. behaving in a polite way for its own sake. Yeah, she got impatient. Yeah, she got impatient and thought, I don't have to put up with it. One of the other things that stood out too, you said that she was an imaginatively bad cook. What, what do you mean by that? That's certainly true. Well, she had sort of concoctions that she <laughs> thought were delicious. I, could, I remember one which was a combination of tin tuna, sweet corn, and tomato sauce. I remember <sighs> being too, truly disgusting. I mean, she wasn't interested in food. Well, that explains why she was so thin, I guess. Yeah. Food was just there. You had to have food because you had to keep going. She was never interested in food. Did you eat that? This tuna concoction? I did, I think. I think I wouldn't have I think I would have wouldn't have dared not. But I found it interesting that when she had these gatherings, people would people quickly realized that you're much better off to bring your own food. Yes. I suppose that's partly what made her such a tough traveler as well. Yeah. Just this um this courage and honesty, but also the to be able to put up with bad conditions and, and not complain, not only not complain about it, but not notice it as much. Yeah. And then to see it, to see it from in later life, from such a humorous perspective as that's what she wrote in um, travels with myself and another. That's uh, I think in hindsight that those horrible travel experiences always come to, to seem the best and, you know, most vivid and most celebrated ones. Yeah. I hope that for all those listeners who, who don't know Martha Gellhorn's work will have the joy of discovering it for the first time. So much interesting stuff here to dig into. There certainly is. Absolutely worthwhile. Completely worthwhile. And certainly I would start with the troubles I've seen and troubles with myself and a lover. And then I'd read the two collections of pieces. Mm. A view from the ground and the one about war. Face of war, yeah. And of course, your, your wonderful biography as well. I would highly recommend to, to anyone who's the least bit interested. I mean, she lived at such an interesting time. Yeah, she did. A time that uh, kind of a time that I, I, I read a lot about the 20th century history, especially the period between the wars, you know, the twenties, thirties and forties. And mm. 
often feel like I should have I should have lived in that time, the, the age of you know the flying boat. I think the thirties, particularly, really fascinating. So what's what's next for you in terms of writing? Um, I've got a book coming out about Edda Mussolini, Mussolini's eldest and favourite daughter, which is really about the twenties, about the twenties and thirties. It's about fascism, and, and I use Edda as a sort of narrative thread. I don't know anything at all about her. Well, you must read my book. Yeah, I look forward to that. That sounds very interesting. She was rather a fascinating figure, and her life was absolutely extraordinary. So when, when is it due, do you know? 28th of October, which is the 100th anniversary of the birth of fascism. Well, thank you very much for your time, Caroline. It's really great to finally connect with you. And, and I'm so pleased to uh, do an episode on Martha Gellhorns, one of my favorite writers on place. So Very nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorn.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.